Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This morning's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 25. Stand for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 25, we'll begin at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick? Or in prison and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into everlasting eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Above all, there is no other. We do pray that your kingdom come. And we pray for the time when you will look to those on your right and you will say, come, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the earth. We long for that day. We know and we have this blessed hope that that day will come. So now as we take the time this morning to look into the truth of your word, we ask that you would strip away all the foolishness, cares, and thoughts floating around in our head. And you would renew our minds once again by your truth, and you would seal it to our hearts. I pray that this is done so that you and your name receive more and more glory and more and more honor, because you are the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, and you are worthy to receive that honor. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
admit that I am in a bit of a quandary. In two weeks, our friend David Morris will be here. Then that following week is the Gladeville Conference. And so it would be nice if we could wrap up the book of Revelation by the end of next week. Because then David would be here. And then we could start talking Christian basics, Christianity 101 from the book of Galatians the week after David was here. So that is kind of my intention to wrap up the book of Revelation today and next week. Whether I'll be able to do it or not is a completely different question. We're just going to have to see because who knows when we will ever be back to the book of Revelation, at least in my lifetime, who knows if I will ever get the chance to teach through Revelation again. So I don't want to shortchange these last couple of chapters, but I am going to give it my best effort. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Verse 5, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making All things new. Last week we concentrated on the newness of the everything of God. The new covenant. The new life. The new person. The new heaven and the new earth. This morning we're going to concentrate on the new Jerusalem. There is a certain amount of controversy surrounding the new Jerusalem about whether it is to be understood in a literal sense or whether it is symbolic, emblematic of the church itself. The church, as we know, is referred to as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. Twice there is a direct reference to the bride and New Jerusalem. And so folk try to conflate New Jerusalem with the idea of the church, make them both one, and say that the New Jerusalem is a symbol of the church itself. However, as we're going to see this morning, the description of New Jerusalem is so very physical that it's very hard to say that John means it any other than literally and genuinely. He's going to give us measurements. He's going to give us structure. He's going to tell us what the foundations are made of, what the gates are made of. And so he is describing an actual physical entity, but it is also just an absolutely huge city. But of course it would be, because it's coming down from heaven to the new earth and into the new atmosphere, the new heavens. And it is the new Jerusalem. Now, the first thing I want to really emphasize is you'll notice the name of the city, Jerusalem, because God has not forgotten his people, Israel. In fact, the gates, the 12 gates of the city are all named for the 12 tribes of Israel. Just like earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they are enumerated and listed so that we know that he is talking about the literal, genuine 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus said to his 12 apostles, 
When I sit on my glorious throne, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is all this reference to a restoration, a regathering, a reestablishment of Israel, and ultimately this city of glory is named after Jerusalem because that is the place historically that God chose to place his name in Jerusalem. The first place where some of that confusion turns up is in verse 2. So let's start at the very beginning of this chapter. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. At this moment, the most John has told us is that New Jerusalem is adorned really well. I think every woman here who has been married, every woman here who hopes to be married, knows that on your marriage day, that's the day you get really dressed up. That's the day that everybody pays attention to the bride. And so John is describing the beauty of this city coming down out of heaven as being like a bride who is adorned for her wedding day. She is adorned for her husband. And that's really, at this moment, the most you can get out of what John has said. The connection here, just because the word bride is used, the connection here to the church is actually an unwarranted leap that the text just simply does not say. What it says is, New Jerusalem is made ready and adorned for her husband. So, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall tabernacle, he shall live among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, Write this down. Write it, for these words are faithful and true. God himself testifying about the honesty of himself, saying that the words that he is proclaiming about making everything new is a faithful and a trustworthy saying. You can count on God to do it because he has said he is going to do it. So all things ultimately are going to be made new. Last week, I emphasized that this is a qualitative newness. This is not just a reformation of what is old. It's not a rubber stamping of a better version of what was old. It is qualitative brand newness, new heaven, new earth, new covenant, new creation, and a new Jerusalem. Now, notice that in verse 2, the description of Jerusalem is the holy city. Earlier in the book of Revelation, 
Jerusalem was compared to Sodom. Okay, not a real holy place. But something happened between God's description of Jerusalem as Sodom, and last week we took the time to read Ezekiel's accounts of the sinfulness, the depravity of what was going on in Jerusalem, and yet God could refer to this Jerusalem as holy and qualitatively different, qualitatively new. So when God says new, he knows what he's talking about, because this is not like the old. This is not a remaking of the old. This is a doing away with of the old, which is why the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. In the same way, the first Jerusalem is passed away and replaced by new Jerusalem. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. Actually, literally, it's they are done. In other words, God is saying, I've accomplished exactly what I intended to accomplish. I have told you what I'm going to do. I told my prophets. It's written down in my word. And now I have accomplished everything that I said I was going to do. And then God himself declares, they're all done. It is finally finished. I am the alpha. That is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the omega. That is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and I am the end. And he is everything in between. Before the foundation of the world, this is Bible language, before the foundation of the world, God decided what he was going to do. Known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. That's what we read. The lamb slain was slain from the foundation of the world. Names were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. In other words, when God determined to do absolutely everything, he had a plan. He didn't start in an arbitrary way. He knew exactly what he was going to do, exactly what he's going to accomplish, and then he set out to do it, which is why when it was all done, he can say, it's done. They are all finished. Everything I set out to do, I've actually done. I have redeemed my people. I have judged people. I have accomplished the whole point of creation, which is the glorification of Christ in the redemption of his particular people. That is all accomplished, and now we are stepping into a period of unbelievable rewards. People taking up residence in the brand new Jerusalem and God himself dwelling among them. God being their tent, God being their tabernacle. And they are his people, and he is their God. What an astounding blessing that will be. As we read the description of New Jerusalem, we're going to read things like, there's no more sun, because God and Christ are the light of New Jerusalem. So this is a qualitatively different cosmos than the one that we currently live in. A different earth where there's no sea and a different atmosphere of necessity. There has to be a different atmosphere because in a moment I'm going to describe to you how large New Jerusalem is. And New Jerusalem could not be part of this present world or this present evil age. 
He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Two weeks ago, Micah did a very good job of talking about the water of life and its connection with the Spirit of God. And he even tied that verse in into his teaching. And so since he covered that so thoroughly, I'm not going to repeat all the things Micah said, but I do want to go back and read Isaiah 55. Because Isaiah 55 resonates with this exact same language that we see here in the book of Revelation. So keep your finger in Revelation 21 and turn back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 in most translations begins with the word ho, which means, hey, hey you, pay attention, listen up. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come you to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Obviously, Isaiah here is not talking about physical water or physical food. It's the same as Jesus saying that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by every word that proceeds from the Father. So here the very sustenance of life, food and water, is described as given to you freely. And as we're going to see as we read the context here of Isaiah, this is God making the free offer to all his people, that they will have free access to the waters of life. That's what the book of Revelation is going to say. And that none of this is going to cost us anything. God is going to give us life and life eternal and provide absolutely everything necessary, not only for our full, complete redemption and salvation, but everything for our eternity and for sustaining us for all eternity. And that he's going to do it by grace. He's going to do it without money. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Verse 2 is a question. Why do you invest yourself in things that don't matter? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. I like that language. Not just delight, but an abundance of delight. You will be made eternally joyful by the abundance of God as he shares with you, as you are joint heir with Christ in everything that Christ alone has earned. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear. Listen to how often he has said, now pay attention. He just said, listen carefully to me. He started with, hey you, and now incline your ear. Pay attention and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. By the way, uh, how long has God been alive? That would be forever. How long will God be alive? Forever. 
That would be forever. So when the everlasting eternal one says the word everlasting, does he know what he's talking about? Because he is the only one who has actual immortality within himself. Everyone else who achieves immortality does it because of him. But even we have a limited immortality because we have a starting place. He doesn't have a starting place. He is truly, genuinely everlasting. As far back into eternity as you can look, as far forward into eternity as you can look, God is. Not God was, or not God began, or not God will be. He told Moses, I am. And that's as much as you need to know about God. He just simply is. And so when he talks about eternity, he knows what he's talking about. And when he makes an everlasting covenant with you, that means that that covenant, that agreement between you and him lasts as long as he has ever been. In other words, he determined it from the very beginning. You participate in it in the course of your lifetime. He decided it, and it has always been true of him and you. I know that's hard for us to wrap our brains around, but when God makes covenants, they're as everlasting as he is. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies that were shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. And behold, you will call a nation that you do not know. And a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord And the Lord, he will have compassion on him and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then, as we're trying to wrap our brains around all those concepts of evil, wicked people being redeemed, being ever loved, God being gracious to them, that's hard for us to wrap our brains around. So verse 8 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear fruit and sprout, And furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, in that same way, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy, and be led forth with peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, 
which came up in Adam's rebellion. We talked about it last week. Instead of that thorn bush, instead of the corruption of the planet, instead of the fallenness of this current planet, a time is coming when instead of the thorn bush, a cypress tree will come up. And instead of nettles, instead of weeds, instead of that, a myrtle tree will come up. And it will be a memorial for Yahweh, for an everlasting sign, because every covenant that God makes also has a sign attached to it. If it's an everlasting covenant, it has to have an everlasting sign, and an everlasting sign which will never be cut off. Okay, so once Isaiah said that, that there is this time of joy, this time of restoration, this time when David's progeny, his greater son, is going to rule over Israel, and that the nations, the Gentiles, are going to flow to it, even nations that they currently didn't know. Ultimately, the whole world, all its kings, all its nations, are going to bring its riches to Jerusalem. All of those promises that you're going to have joy in abundance... You're going to be part of an everlasting covenant based on an everlasting sign. All of that, once Isaiah wrote it, had to happen. When has it happened so far? It just hasn't happened yet. And yet, in Revelation 21, God says, it's happening. It's done. It's all being accomplished. And the fullness of All of that and all those promises are found in the the rest of Revelation 21 and the description of New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's the same thing that Isaiah said. You that have no money, come, buy, drink, eat. Here is God saying, this is being accomplished now. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes, he who perseveres in the faith till the end shall inherit all these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But... For the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, these words, these descriptions are actually deeper than what we can express in single words in the English language. For instance, the word that is translated in the NASB as cowardly is actually delos in the Greek. And it means to be vile and worthless, not just cowardly, not just fearful, but to be completely pointless in your life. And what determines that kind of pointlessness? Well, lack of faith toward God, because that's the very next thing he mentions. Ah, pistis, you know that pistis is the word for faith. 
You put the alpha negative on the front of any Greek word, you turn it 180 degrees back the other way. Apistus, no faith. And so that is translated unbelieving. But the word itself means to be an infidel, to be completely untrustworthy. It's more than just not believing in Christ. In fact, if you don't believe in Christ and you are a vile, worthless, fearful person, that makes you bedeluso. That word is translated abominable. It is a derivative of the word bedeo, which means to stink. In fact, what it is, is it means to be disgusted by something that's detestable. Especially that word is used when talking about idols, that idols are detestable before God. Therefore, they are an abomination before God. So someone who is vile and worthless, who has no faith, is an infidel, and they stink in the nostrils of God, Unlike the sacrifices of God's people that send up a sweet odor into the nostrils of God, the smell of these abominable people is a stench in God's nose, and they are disgusting. They are detestable, usually because they are involved in the worship of other gods. And then murderer, von use. It's always a reference to some kind of criminal, intentional homicide. It's not just killing. It's killing on purpose. It's killing for your own aggrandizement or enriching yourself. It's murdering somebody out of hate. And then immoral person, you can probably guess which word that is. It is the Greek word pornos. Does that sound familiar? It's moved unchanged into the English language. We get our words like Pornography, from the word pornos. Usually, it's a reference to either a male prostitute or a fornicator who is a whoremonger. So we're talking about detestable people. Or then he mentions sorcerer. Okay, here's a really interesting one. The word is pharmakos. Sound familiar? It's the word from which we get pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, drugs. Are there any drugs in the world right now? (laughs) Gee, there seems to be like a lot of drugs in the world right now. Well, that is the word pharmakos, which is translated sorcerer because the sorcerers and the witchers, and the witchers, the sorcerers and the witches used to create concoctions, potions, that when you took them, it would change your state of mind, very like so many drugs do. And so that is listed. And then idolater. Idolatrace is the Greek word. Again, it just kind of migrated into the English language, largely unchanged. It means a servant or a worshiper of an image, something that they make with their own hands and that are willing to bow down to it. That's an idolater. And then liar. Have you ever heard of a pseudo-anything? That's the Greek word, pseudes. And it means something that is false, untrue, erroneous, deceitful, but ultimately wicked 
because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and everything that is anti-Christian, everything that is anti-God, is, by definition, untrue. It is a lie. So in that list, John has listed the basic depravity of human beings that God is going to ultimately judge, but notice that it has no place in the New Jerusalem. All those various human depraved characteristics are driven out of New Jerusalem. Again, that's why it can be called the holy city. And again, that is why it is qualitatively new. Because our world today is defined by unbelieving cowards that are abominable before God. Murder goes on all the time. Sexual immorality and prostitution Drugs and sorcery and all kinds of idolatry. Everybody lies. You turn on your TV any day and watch a politician, they're going to lie. And then we're all going to shrug and go, well, he's a politician. Of course he lies. Because we just accept lies anymore. All of the people with those hallmarks in their life, with those characteristics that are defining them, they will have a part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone known as the lake of fire, they take part in the second death. Verse 9. And one of the seven angels, who previously had the seven bowls full of the last plagues, came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay, now this is really interesting again. Either he is saying, I'm going to show you New Jerusalem that came down out of heaven adorned as a bride, and now I'm going to show that to you. Or he is saying, the last time you saw the bride of Christ was at the marriage supper of the Lamb in what we know as chapter 19, and then we haven't heard any more about her. There's been this return to God paying attention to Israel and to the sacrifices of Israel, to the martyrs of Israel. Then God turned to the judgment, very much like what Micah read this morning, the ultimate judgment between the sheep and the goats. And so as he's been discussing all that, the last time we saw the church, the bride of Christ, was when they were returning with Christ at the beginning of the millennium on horseback as he was coming back in his robe dipped with blood to set up his kingdom. So we haven't heard from them in the last roughly thousand years that is covered by this part of the text in Revelation 20. So now maybe the angel is saying, let me also show her to you so that you know where the church ends up. What we know for sure is the church ends up in the New Jerusalem. But then we cannot say that the New Jerusalem is the church because of the description we're about to read which is a very physical description of an actual city. So he carried me away, says verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain, showing me the holy city, Jerusalem, that came down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Can you imagine 
the walls of a gigantic city, and in a moment I'm going to describe the dimensions of the city. Can you imagine a giant city that is all made of stone that is also like crystal clear jasper? That's really hard for us to envision. And I think John is going to really stretch his language here to describe the glory of what he is witnessing. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. At the 12 gates were 12 angels. Names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall, And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. The NASB says 1,500 miles was its length and its width. And then we're told the height is equal. So it's basically an enormous cube. Now, to give you some sense of what we're talking about here, in the Greek, it's 12,000 stadia in length, and in width, and in height. This Greek measurement, a stadion, was basically the equivalent to about 607 feet. So let's do the math. That would make the city approximately 1,380 miles in length, and width, and height. Now, for comparison, if you were to lay that kind of cube-shaped New Jerusalem over our contiguous United States. You know what I mean by contiguous, right? The ones that are connected to each other. We're not counting Alaska and Hawaii at the moment. Sorry, Alaska and Hawaii. But if you were to lay New Jerusalem over the United States, it would cover an area of about 1.9 million square miles. And for comparison... The United States is approximately 3.1 million square miles. So we're talking about two-thirds of the landmass of the United States is going to lay at the foundation of New Jerusalem. And as big as that is, and as hard as that is to conceive of, it's that high too. Okay, so we're really talking about a massive city. You can see why in order to put New Jerusalem on the planet, there would have to be a new planet because the planet and the atmosphere as it stands could not host such a city. And yet that's what John is describing for us. By the way, also notice that one more time, John is doing math for us. He is talking in numbers, mathematic numbers, literal numbers. And he is describing the city very literally. The three gates on the east and the west and the north and the south. The names of the 12 tribes on the gates. The foundation stones, there were 12 of them. Each of them had the name of an apostle of the Lamb. And then he starts measuring it. 
and the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. 1,500 miles was its length and its width and its height, and they're all equal. So it's a cube. And he measured its wall. 72 yards. Okay, so Tom, how long is a football field? 100. That's 100 yards. So we're talking three quarters of a football field. That's how wide the walls are. These are very solid walls. He measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, just like he told us earlier, like crystal clear jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. I don't even think I understand that description. It's pure gold, like clear glass. That would be a highly refined form of gold. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were each twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. That's got to be a very large set of pearls. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. He says it again. Pure gold, so refined, so pure, that it's practically transparent like glass. Okay, so those are the physical dimensions and the physical makeup and the stones are all for the glory of God and for the glory of the city. These are the most precious, glowing stones that God can list here. And the 12 foundation stones each represent an apostle as a precious stone. It's very much like Paul writing that the church itself is built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. The city itself is built on the foundation of the apostles. And then there are 12 gates. Each gate is a singular pearl per gate. And those gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. But now we're going to find out that the gates never close. The gates are always open. Everybody who is still part of the new heaven and the new earth has unfettered access to the new Jerusalem. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it. That's interesting. A minute ago, we read that God was going to tabernacle among us, that the tabernacle of God would be among his people and he would live among his people. That word tabernacle is essentially tent, and it reaches all the way back to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the place where Israel met with God where the high priest would go in once a year to meet with God and make atonement for Israel. That's the concept of the tabernacle. When the tabernacle 
was moved to Jerusalem and then Solomon built the temple, that Solomonic temple was then the house of God. It housed the Ark of the Covenant. That was the place where the sacrifice and where the worship took place. And yet, in the new Jerusalem, unlike anything that has ever happened in human history, God himself is among his people as the tabernacle, so he is the place of worship. Therefore, there is no need for a temple because he is everywhere in the new Jerusalem, and the worship of him continually is wherever you are in the new Jerusalem. Completely different than all the worship that has ever taken place on planet Earth because all worship on planet Earth has always been toward a God who we cannot see. But he will be among his people, tabernacling among them, living among them. He will be their God. They will be his people. And I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem for the Lord God, the Almighty One, and the Lamb are its temple. Find it interesting that John took the time to point out that the God who's being worshipped here is the one who has all the might. This is the same God who began by saying, I'm going to do everything. And then he did everything. And then when it was over, he said, I did everything. That would be the God who has all the power. And whenever we talk about God who has all the power, I like to ask the question, how much power does that leave over for you? Yeah, there's none for you because he is God Almighty. He has all the power. He has all the authority. You can see why in his new Jerusalem, on his new earth, in his new heavens, he gets all the worship. He gets all the glory continuously from everybody who is in the new Jerusalem because they have ready access to him all the time. He is their God. They are his people. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Christ himself, are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. So the light, the lamp itself, is Christ. But the illumination that radiates from it is God himself. And if there's no sun or moon, but the presence of God is lighting the city continually, that is a physical demonstration of God in the midst of his people in New Jerusalem. It's just magnificent language. It's so hard to conceive of this level of communion with God and this level of joy. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And now what about the nations that are not Israel? We know for sure, as I've been emphasizing, the gates are all designated for the 12 tribes. That's the entranceway for each of the 12 tribes. They can go out of the city and back in the city through their perspective gates. And then there are the 12 apostles who themselves were Jewish. But what about us? What about the goyim? 
What about the ethnos? What about us Gentiles? Well, that's what verse 24 is about. And the ethnos, the nations, shall walk by the light of the new Jerusalem. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. Verse 25, and in the daytime, and then John says parenthetically, for there shall be no night there. Since there's no night, it's always day, and therefore the gates are never closed. In ancient Mideast cities, in fortifying and defending themselves, when night came, you always closed the gates so that the marauders and the thieves of the night didn't come into your city, so that you could sleep peacefully in your city. You always close the gates, but because God is the sun, Christ is the lamp, the city is illuminated by the presence of God, therefore it is always day, it is never night there, therefore there's no reason for the gates to ever be closed. This is another demonstration from John we got to think 2,000 years ago, Middle Eastern warfare in Middle Eastern cities, think in that context, the concept of a city that is so protected, that has such great high thick walls, and then it leaves its gates open all the time? I mean, that's unthinkable unless all of those who are liars and robbers and thieves all the unclean, immoral, stinking people, if they have already been judged, then there's no reason to close the gates. Everybody who's left has free access to New Jerusalem all the time. In the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the ethnos, of the nations, of the Gentiles into New Jerusalem. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and no one who practices lying shall ever come into New Jerusalem. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There it is again. So now I have to emphasize I know people sometimes uh, question our dedication to the doctrine of predestination, to the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. And I just keep saying, but it's what the Bible says. It's exactly what the Bible says. I can't avoid that this is what the Bible says. Here's a perfect demonstration of it. New Jerusalem is going to be filled with the regathered, reestablished 12 tribes of Israel. They get their own gates. It is obviously theirs. It's even called New Jerusalem. That is a clue. But then Gentiles get to be part of it. Oh, happy day. People like you and me also get to be part of it. And the glory that was once belonging to the Gentile nations is all going to be brought into New Jerusalem, nothing unclean, no one who practices abominations or lying, nobody like that is ever going to be able to come into it. They are all going to stand judged before God. New Jerusalem can therefore be called a holy city. 
But the only people who are going to be in the New Jerusalem are the people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And earlier in the book of Revelation, we read about when names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when were those names written? Before the foundation of the world. So before God did anything, before he made the first star, before he put the first nucleus of the first atom into motion, before he began the physicality of everything he created, he had a plan. And he knew everybody who was ever going to be born the same way that he knows the names of every star among the billions of stars in our galaxy and in the outer cosmos. He calls all those stars by name. The same way that he has legions of angels and he knows them all. Well, then he also knows the people that he is going to make, the people he is going to create. He knew your name. He knew when you were going to be born. He knew where you were going to be born. He knew who your parents were going to be. He knew what color you were going to be. He knew how smart you were going to be. He knew everything about you. And then he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life and said, these are the people that my son is going to die for. And when he dies for those people, because he's going to be a perfect savior who's going to be celebrated, who's going to be worshipped and adored through all the ages of eternity to come, When he dies for those people, he is going to be their complete savior, their ultimate savior. He's going to save them utterly and completely so that when they get to heaven, as undeserving as they are, enemies though they were, sinners though they were, when they get to heaven, they glorify the son because Christ alone, the lamb, is the one who actually sacrificed and saved those people. And they didn't do any part of that themselves. Everything you do is in reaction to what he's already done for you. And what he has done for you was determined before the foundation of the world. How saved are you? I mean, if that's what he did, if that's the determination he made... And the same way that he wrote down his word in the Bible, the same way that he wrote down what he was going to do before he did it, he wrote down the names of the people he was going to save, and he put them in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And then the Lamb came into time and history and gave his life and gave his blood as a fully sufficient sacrifice to save those people whose names were in the Lamb's book of life, which is why God could say, it's all finished. It's all done. It's all accomplished. Because everything God determined to do before the foundation of everything is wrapped up in the new Jerusalem, in his presence with his people, in his constant glorification, in the worship of his people, him being with them, them being with him, in eternal presence and joy and unfettered access to the tree of life, to the waters of life, and to all the things that Christ himself earned on our behalf. Here's what I'm getting at. It just gets better. Life right now, let's admit it, tough! Life is tough. Life today for me is extra tough. I'm standing here right now for the first time in orthotic shoes. 
I know, everybody just looked at my shoes, I know. I had to go to a particular doctor in Brentwood and get custom-made orthotics to try to help my hips and the way I stand. I've been walking 67 years, had no idea I was doing it wrong. <laughs> Got orthotic shoes now because life here is tough and our bodies are aging. And as we talked about last week, everything is running down. The whole planet is running down. And ultimately, God is going to make it all brand new. And when he makes it all new, it's all going to redound to his glory and his glory alone. And you, silly little you, stupid little you, pointless little, I'll go on, you, you get to be part of that. And you don't get to be part of it because of you or anything you did. You are your problem. You get to participate in the new Jerusalem and the glory of God forever because of everything that the Son did, everything that the Lamb did for you, everything that Jesus Christ did for you. He was the full sufficient payment to get you to the new Jerusalem promise for all of eternity. He's the one you're going to worship and praise for all of eternity because he deserves it. Amen. I'm done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.